Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 140. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we're so delighted and blessed that we can meet together week after week and join in on this uh, blessing, uh, sharing with one another across the miles as I was chatting with the the, the folks in the chat room uh, just before we started the show. Um, some of us are in one country, others are in another country, and yet others are still in a different country on the other side of the world, and yet through technology, we're able to come together and to bless you and to study together and to read your words and to rejoice in who you are. Thank you, Father, for giving us this opportunity continue to challenge us as we study your words, as we expand our understanding of the text, but not just for knowledge's sake. Lord, we, like Ezra, like we're going to watch in the video tonight, we study in order to do, in order to teach others to study and to and to teach. Let that cycle be perpetuated. Let us study so that we can become the uh, 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 a, a better people group, um, stronger in our faith, in our walk, um, more equipped to be able to share the good news with those around us, um, uh, to express our faith, to put feet to our faith, to to walk out um, our covenant uh, membership, and to um, to glorify our Messiah Yeshua. Raise us up, Lord, as family. Strengthen us. Continue to protect us during these pandemic times. Give us a hope beyond hope. Help us to see past the immediate situation uh, in um, terms of of just uh, the general outlook for the world. Because if we look at the headlines, Lord, if we only look at the headlines, then things seem pretty grim, pretty bleak, with all the mass shootings and the uh, the, the you know the, the political confusion and the um, the racial tension and and just um, you know it's it's a mess. The world is a mess. But but for the grace of God, uh, we would be without hope. But we're not without hope. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us out of that darkness and into your marvelous light. And we can celebrate you and uh, celebrate your Son. And that is what we will do. Be with us tonight. Empower us to um, uh, to uh, uh, appreciate the text, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Just want to thank everyone for joining me week after week, taking time out of your busy schedule to stop and and. Uh, uh, 
connect with me uh, through this medium of either internet, YouTube videos, iPad, uh, iTunes podcasts, MP3s, audio recordings, and things like that. Just connecting with people from different places is such a blessing. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a tour teacher at a congregation in Colorado in, in the United States. The Harvest is the um, name of my congregation, Kehilatunumal is the Hebrew title. Uh, you can see on your screen right now, I've got our webpage pulled up at grafted.com. We'd love to have you join us either in person and online uh, at our website, grafted.com. If you do go to our website, you can click on the recent sermons. You can see on my screen right now, Pastor Mark is still uh, finishing up his Pentecost sermons um, for these live uh, uh, broadcasts that we upload to YouTube. Uh, so if you can't make it out in person, um, then be sure to catch us on YouTube. Speaking of um, web pages, I've got my own website at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. I'd love to have you hit my own home website and browse around and see what you think. Um, feel free to uh, not only access the commentaries, but you can download them in, in uh, PDF form, or for many of them, there is an accompanying audio, like an MP3 file that I push up to the iTunes for my podcasts. And then lately, I've been turning a lot of my teachings into YouTube videos as well. So um, be sure to watch uh, for all of those. Speaking of YouTube videos, why not find me on the web at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. That's my YouTube channel, as you can see on my screen right now. And uh, I'm quite busy there. I've been putting in a lot of work to try and make the channel um, what it is and to, uh, to just to provide uh, teachings for you week after week. I'm, I really upload something just about every day if you look at the, um, uh, the time stamps and the date stamps on all the little recordings there. If you do hit my YouTube channel, do these few things for me. Okay, I'll just rattle them off. Um, subscribe to my YouTube channel and become part of the family. Um, hit the little bell for notifications to make sure that you stay in the loop whenever I upload a new video. Hit the thumbs up to show me that you like the content um, that you, that I'm posting. Of course, you can hit the thumbs down if you don't like what I'm what I'm posting, but I'm hoping you hit the thumbs up. Uh, number four, uh, leave um, comments and tell me what you thought about the content of the video. I know this is theological, so sometimes the comments are going to uh, go in that direction. But otherwise, just you know, tell me what 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 I'm doing that's right, and let me know what you'd like to to see, and I'll see what I can produce. And then fifth, there's a little arrow to the bottom of most videos that allows you to share the content with your social media friends, um, you know, on your Facebooks and your Twitters and your, and your um, uh, other types of accounts. Um, feel free to share my content with your friends and family members, okay? That would really be great. This is live internet studies, and I bring them to you each week. Let me just scroll down into the announcements page and let you know what we're looking at. This is episode number 140 tonight. Our meeting date is always on a Monday night. This is May 31st, 2020 for the USA date for this particular recording. And um, we always meet on Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Sometimes we go over. We usually go a little bit over, but I don't. I think it's very rare that we that we're under an hour. The hour-long show is broken up into two segments, broadly speaking, not counting all these announcements and the opening prayer and things like that. But the first segment for 30 minutes is given over to studying my commentary on Romans 14. 
It's called Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my. And we're in part 56. We're going through some supplementary material by Tim Haig. His Matthew commentary is supplying us with a look at this topic on the kingdom of God and the relevancy of what I believe would have been in Paul's mind when he's writing the letter to Romans. He's writing to Gentile Christians predominantly, but in the back of his mind, he knows that there is a Jewish presence there in Rome that needs the help of these Gentile Christians in many ways practically, right, because of the the uh, the disenfranchisement and the the uh, suffering of the Jewish people, especially at the hands of Rome and all of the, uh, the, the, the expulsions from Rome and the persecution from Rome and things like that, but also because in the salvation program of God, I'm giving this little plug for my Romans commentary, in the salvation program of God, Gentiles have been grafted into a covenant relationship, not just with God, but into a community relationship with Israel. Read Romans and read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, very, very particularly, uh, to see how that Paul is wanting the Gentile Christians in Rome, to the, the church at Rome, to take up their responsibility to not just pray for the Jewish people, but to continue to connect to them uh, as a, a, a broader covenant people, even though they're in, in a state in a state of stumbling and unbelief, disbelief when it comes to Yeshua, who's the Messiah, that doesn't change the fact that they are still the covenant people of God and that they are part of the program when it comes to salvation history. Mercy has been shown to the Gentiles on behalf of the blindness of the of uh, Israel and now it is up to these gentiles to turn around and extend that same mercy to these uh, stumbling Israelites so that they can be brought into the place where God uh, is bringing them into. So God is using Jews to reach out to Gentiles, and now God's re- using Gentiles to reach back over to those blinded Jewish people. That's the connection, and this is seen very, um, uh, very, how should I say, I want to say carefully, but it's seen very uh, uh, conveniently in this topic that we're looking at right now, Kingdom of Heaven. So there's my plug. Stay tuned for that part of my commentary later on tonight. Segment two deals with this apologetic look at the Trinity topic. It's called Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two of three parts, three papers. Um, on purpose, there's three papers, right? Do you get it? Trinity, three papers. We're in paper two entitled Hashem and Yeshua, or Adonai and Yeshua, uh, God and Yeshua, Yahweh and Yeshua, however you want to pronounce the tetragrammaton name there. Um, and we're in part 73 tonight. And then, as always, we'll watch a little, a short YouTube-featured v- video on this night. It'll be on tonight. It'll be on Ezra 710, the Ezra example. Like I said, my prayer study in order to do, in order to teach, like Ezra talked about. That's what I call the Ezra example, or the Ezra uh, principle. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, just get get Skype, grab a hold of Skype somehow, get access to it somehow. Uh, If you don't have Skype, you don't even really need it. You see the blue uh, Skype banner on my screen right now? If you click that and you've got internet access and you're on a desktop or a laptop computer, then Skype will um, launch and it'll connect you to the live study when we're having a live study. Um, otherwise, it'll just tell you, hey, uh, the, the, the study's not going right now. But uh, you don't even need Skype to do it to go that route. Otherwise, if you do have Skype and you've got an account, then um, uh, it'll log you in and you can join the study that way. And as always, uh, if you're on my website, um, take a moment to scroll all the way to the bottom, to that black footer section, if you get a moment, and consider prayerfully um, uh, ministering to me 
via donation. Um, uh, I'm in a position still, uh, uncomfortably of course, uh, where I'm uh, heavily reliant on on gifts and support from uh, friends and family members. And Hashem is using this time in my life to just continue to show me how, uh, how wonderful He is and how gracious He is. And so by your gifts and donations and, and, and uh, you know, pouring into my ministry via this method, I'm able to continue to bring these commentaries to you and to help keep me in a place where I'm still searching for employment. Don't think I'm not, but uh, until that time comes where I can s- support myself better, well, then this is the way that you can help me out. So I appreciate the donations and the blessings, and as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. This is actually not, like I said, we're not working our way through my own commentary at the moment. We're working our way through some supplementary material. So um, Tim Haig of TorResource.com wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew. And this is part of that Matthew commentary that is available at his website, but it is a purchase. You must purchase the Matthew commentary. And in that purchase, you can either get the hard copy book mailed out to you, or you can um, download the PDF document. And that's what we're looking at right now on my screen. Let's jump into where we left off last week. This is part four of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we're looking at this through the lens of Paul's writing to the book of Romans with the careful Um, understanding that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is this concept that was already existing in Paul's day. It's something that Yeshua was uh, big on, you know, talking about. The apostles talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What's the importance of this um, kingdom of God and this kingdom of heaven, particularly how it bears relevance to helping us to better appreciate Paul's letter to the book of Romans. Jews and Gentiles thrust together in this kingdom of God. Does it still envision bringing the kingdom to Israel like Yeshua and the disciples talked about. Did Paul switch gears suddenly? Now he's only bringing the kingdom to Gentiles and he's left Israel out on the sidelines. This is where we're um, trying to draw some, uh, some, um, some application for today. I know it's difficult to try and reach out to Jewish people today because of all of the... Um, the uh, what the... Uh, I don't want to call it just pushback. I mean, it's, it's outright... Um, opposition to the gospel, the anti-missionary programs and the counter-missionary rabbis that that seek to derail the gospel. But um, nevertheless, we are continuing, we are commanded to continue to reach out to Israel and to uh, pray for her and to try to reach her with the truth of Messiah Yeshua. At the very least, we as Gentile Christians can um, educate ourselves when it comes to the Torah, the scriptures of Israel, and that's something we can practically do even if we never meet a, an unbelieving Jewish person in our life. We can stop where we're at and reevaluate the role of Torah in our lives. And we're going to talk about that tonight in the Shema study, this relationship of faith and faithfulness of covenant membership and obedience and um, justification and sanctification. We're going to talk about that tonight, oddly enough, in my Trinity study. So stay tuned for that later, a little later on, for probably about 30 minutes from now, okay? All right, so let's pick up um, where Tim Hegg le- left off, where we left off with Tim Hegg's study last week, okay? Give me a moment. My Those of you in my live study, just uh, checking on, let's see what Skype's telling me. Okay, all righty. 
All right, uh, so let's pick up again uh, this study with Tim Hague. We started looking at his um, notes on the practical implications of the kingdom of heaven, and we talked about, first of all, um, the fact that the Gospels proclaimed by Yeshua and the disciples, the Gospel, includes the Gospel of the kingdom. What does it entail? Uh, At the very least, it entails um, this idea that Israel is part of the kingdom plan of the king and that gentiles are also brought into this relationship with god and thus into relationship with the existing people group known as israel or the jewish people so that was the first thing we looked at let's pick up the reading now here at the top of the screen where it says secondly the kingdom of god as the primary expression of the gospel cannot ignore the fact that the national expression of the people of israel is both the first expression of this kingdom and the foundation of of it. Understand what Tim Hague is trying to uh, explain there. That Yeshua expressed his intentions to go first to the, quote, lost sheep of Israel, end quote, shows that any definition of the kingdom of God that excludes the divine prerogative to remain faithful to the physical seed of Jacob is wrong-headed. And let me pause and interject. The way this bears relevance for our study in the book of Romans is that Paul, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, has to stop and remind and lightly rebuke the Gentile Christians at Rome for their position on what it seems to be not reaching out to the disenfranchised Jewish people and connecting to them the way that they should, and indeed developing kind of a a community mindset as Gentiles that we as Gentile Christians we don't really need the Jewish people anymore. It seems to us, I'm speaking as a Gentile in Paul's day, a Christian, it seems to us that God has changed his program. He used to be interested in the Jewish people. He reached out to them for a while through the Old Testament, but now he seems to be turning to the Gentiles, and we're the focal point of his salvation program. He doesn't seem to be interested in Jewish people. Perhaps maybe we've replaced them. Perhaps maybe they're out and we're in. Perhaps maybe they're the old people of God and we're the new people. Maybe we've replaced them as the new Israel. Maybe, really, when we read through the Old Testament, we should be seeing ourselves there all along. You know, when we read Israel, hero Israel, really God's talking to us. By faith, we have accepted his son Messiah Yeshua, so maybe... Maybe it's that faith to uh, to his son that puts us in this um, favored position over uh, you know over and above national Israel, who of course rejected him as their Messiah. Maybe that's what's going on. Paul, sensing this by the Spirit, has to cut that program down as quick as he can because left unchecked, it would turn into full blown. Of course, what it has done today in many places, which is supersessionism, replacement theology, this idea that the church has replaced Israel, the Jews are out, the ter- the church is in, the Old Testament's out, the New Testament is in, the, the law of Moses has been replaced by the law of Christ, um, things like that. That's the unfortunate position that not all, thankfully, but many, 
especially in the early days, early, you know, 2,000 years ago, the early church fathers had begun to entertain this idea and come to this notion right away that we have replaced Israel. Well, the kingdom of God as the primary expression of the gospel cannot ignore the fact that the national expression of the people of Israel is both the first expression of this kingdom of God and the foundation of it. And that's what Tim Hague's trying to alert us to this. So let's keep reading. Rather than forsaking Israel or redefining Israel in platonic overtones of the ideal, Yeshua and his apostles considered the, coven- considered the covenant promises made to the physical offspring of Jacob as the foundational elements of the kingdom of God. He continues, Indeed, the presence of the Shekhinah, that is the manifest presence of the Spirit of God, as we can sense it with one of our five senses. That's what I mean by Shekhinah. Or as my uh, good um, Southern Baptist uh, uh, pastor friend would say, the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah glory. The Shekhinah in the tabernacle, Tim says, was the expression of God's rule and reign as Israel's king. That the the cherubim or the kuruvim are, des- are designated in terms reminiscent of a throne upon which the king sits, right? Read through the passages that Tim Haig references in, out of Numbers, Samuel, Chronicles, and things like that, Isaiah, and the, and the book of Psalms. You guys know, you've seen pictures of the Ark of the Covenant. This idea of these cherubim sitting on top of this, this the, the lid of the box of the known as the Ark of the Covenant, this um, di- uh, um shows that his throne, speaking of God as the king, was integral to his covenant presence among the chosen people of Israel. So God is a king, and he represents himself in these um, pictures and, and uh, uh, articles in, in the tabernacle. And this the, th- the themes of kingship are there. And so that was one of the ways we could see that. And so Tim Hague says, we see that the eschatological victory of God as promised by the prophets, listen to this, it incorporates the same imagery where God reigns forever in Zion, right? In the book of Psalms and Isaiah and Micah. Um, He has placed his name, his eyes, and his heart are in Zion forever in the book of Kings. And so what we need to remind ourselves of as we study through the Bible is that it is from Jerusalem that his future reign in the millennial kingdom via his chosen Messiah emanates, and it is thus in the context of a regathered united Israel, worshiping in accordance with the Torah of Moshe that his kingship is ultimately seen. It is unfortunate that we as Gentile Christians being brought into this program with Israel and with the kingdom of God have lost sight of how Israel-centric this whole program is. God, the king, ruling from Zion, from Jerusalem, through his Jewish uh, Messiah, his king, Messiah, his son, who rules, who will one day rule in this millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. And yet, we, again, as the church, we just dismiss all of that. Um, we, we, it's out of sight, out of mind. We don't concern ourselves with it. We, uh, downplay it. Uh, and that's unfortunate for our, um, for our own benefit. Let's not make those same mistakes. Uh, Tim continues, the kingdom of heaven therefore cannot be separated from the chosen people of Israel and her inevitable future blessing by the sovereign hand of God. Let me read that sentence again. 
keep Romans in mind. We're studying through the book of Romans. We're studying through how these two people groups in Romans 14 are thrust together at table fellowship, right? And at uh, um, issues involving purities of foods and, and the separation of, of idolatry and um, uh, special days and fast days and feast days. And, and what do we do with uh, the fact that we come from different religious backgrounds and we have different sensitivities towards um, what perhaps is considered clean and unclean and what's perhaps considered edible and not edible and things like that. What do we do? How do we come together without destroying one another uh, with our religious preferences? Well, um, Paul's going to remind all who would be listening something similar to what Tim Haig mentioned here. The kingdom of heaven, therefore, cannot be separated from the chosen people of Israel and an inevitable future blessing by the sovereign hand of God. Yes, Israel is in a position in Paul's day where she is unbelieving, she's stumbling, she's backsliding, she's not walking into the program that God has laid out for her, she's resisting that. She's rejecting her very Messiah that was promised to her in the scriptures, and she's not accepting the Gentiles into the family of God like God has planned it. So she's um, she's causing things to be difficult for the communities of God. She's persecuting the um, chosen people. She's um, persecuting the Messianic Jews. She's, uh, like I said, she's resisting Messiah. Um, She's rejecting the Gentiles. This is unbelieving, stumbling Israel, national Israel of of, um, Paul's day and of today. National Israel today is still in a position of unbelief, of of blindness, of stumbling over her Messiah and of the presence of the Gentiles. So, Despite all of that, despite the present state of stumbling Israel in Paul's day and of today, Paul nevertheless wants his Gentile brothers in Messiah to continue to know their place in the kingdom of heaven, to know where they sit in God's program and how that they are connected to the chosen people of Israel. And and, now, and here's the kicker. When Paul read through his prophets, when Paul read through the scriptures of Israel, he didn't he didn't see um, that the stumbling of Israel was the end. He didn't see that that was the conclusion to the matter. He didn't see that God had written her off and that that was it. Instead, he read all the way through the prophets and he realized that actually the Gentiles are being brought into this kingdom people group, and that they're being the two of us are being brought together as a unified people for God. We don't erase our distinctives as Jews and Gentile. We retain that, and yet at the same time, we complement one another as Jew and Gentile worship God together and recognize God's chosen um, Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua is glorified in the midst of a unified people of God, Jew and Gentile together. He's um, uh, lifted up. He's... um, exalted and it is this uh keeping our eyes focused on our messiah and not on each other so we can uh fight against one another that paul's trying to let us know hey this is the solution to 
um, the conflict that we're going to have as different people groups. Keep our let's keep our eyes focused on who Yeshua is. Let's keep our eyes focused on the King and the Kingdom. Let's keep our eyes focused on the fact that we are both citizens together, and we've been brought into this kingdom together by God's mercy and grace. Not a, neither one of us is better than the other, and more chosen or more special. We're both chosen by God. We're both equal participants in this kingdom. We need one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to support one another. We need to work together so that we can complement one another and showcase to the rest of the world that we are the kingdom of God. We are the people of God together. This doesn't mean that we tear one another down. Far from it. And it certainly doesn't mean that we throw each other's commandments uh, out the door, you know, that doesn't solve anything either. So let's keep reading what Tim Hague has to say. He says, Any message of the gospel that fails to incorporate God's clear intention to save Israel at the end of the days, right, the Achit Hayimim, at the end of days, is therefore vastly deficient. And what I mean by that is that um, I think Tim Hague's trying to remind us of the fact that historically, Gentile Christianity um, unfortunately decided to um, come to this conclusion that God was done with Israel and that there was no hope for her. In her blindness, in her stumbling, she had uh, cut herself off from all covenant access to God. And that's not really what happened. Yes, God was judging Israel for her blindness, and there is judgment when you reject Yeshua. Ultimately, if you reject Yeshua and you don't come around to accepting him in your lifetime, well then, there is no hope for you, and you are cut off from God and from his Messiah. Yes, that's true. But to the degree that you've not yet made a final decision against Yeshua, then there's hope. And Paul was of the impression that, read this in Romans chapter 11, Paul of the, of, was of the impression that as a people group, God would ultimately turn Israel's heart. Where did he get that impression? He got it from reading through the prophets. He read through the prophets and he realized that even though Israel was being blinded at this present day, this anomaly... Nevertheless, at the end of days, God would turn Israel's blindness around, he would soften her heart, he would reach out to her, bring her back to himself, and he would um, collectively bring the national Israel to a place where she could accept his Messiah. Would this mean every single Jew? Probably not. But collectively, as the people group, she would be known as the people of God, uh, a people of Messiah one day. And so Paul realized that the bringing in of the Gentiles was the very proof that these promises were going to be um, sure and that they were being brought to pass. Because along with bringing stumbling Israel back into the picture, God also promised in those very same scriptures that Paul was reading, God promised that the Gentiles would be worshiping God right alongside of those Jews who were also worshiping God. That is how Paul could link the two together. So, that's what we also need to do when reading through our Bible. We don't need to put Israel off to the side as if she's out of the picture. We as Gentile Christians, we as part of the church. Seeing this separation between the church and Israel to the point where Israel is, is out of the picture and she's, she doesn't have any future is the deficiency that Tim Haig is, re is referring to. He continues, moreover, that the gospel of the kingdom would go to all the nations, like we read in Matthew in the, you know, the Great Commission, makes it clear that the... Um, 
salvation of those chosen from nations does not evaluate I'm sorry does not eventuate in a second kingdom or one that replaces God's reign in Zion so it's not that the church has initiated or brought in this a uh, second people group of God that sits alongside of the first people group of God, albeit separate. That's not what's going on either. Tim Hay continues, rather, um, the redeemed ones from the nations, right, the Gentiles, they join Israel as members of God's established kingdom. Are you understanding the um, the importance of how this helps us to appreciate Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians and other some of his other letters where he talks about Abraham's family includes Jews and Gentiles brought into faith of Messiah and worshiping God together. Therefore, it is vital that we Gentiles who are brought into the picture, we need to recognize the um, established members of God's kingdom i.e. the Jewish people. We need to um, recognize that there are brothers, even if they are in an unbelieving state, they are nevertheless the very same people that God used to reach out to us and that God expects us to reach back out to them. It is this people group. So in this way, God is glorified as um, uh, uh, Jew and Gentile are brought together to worship God and recognize his Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua emphasized this when he taught that, quote, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, and quote. Who are those many coming from east and west? Well, those are the Gentiles being brought into this table fellowship, right? That's what he said, recline at table. These Gentiles, by faith, are brought into this family and into the table fellowship, reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning they are sitting at the same table with the existing family of Abraham, the Jewish people. And they're sitting at the same table. Isn't that appropriate given the um, material that we're working from in Romans chapter 14, where Paul talks about he who's weak in faith, and one's eating one thing and one's eating another thing, and the inclination of these two people groups to judge one another and to disfellowship with one another and not to have table fellowship with one another. Isn't it appropriate that Yeshua taught that many will come from east and west? Gentiles will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that interesting? Paul must have had Yeshua's um, sayings in mind when he put his letters together. He knew that if we if we leave it up to ourselves as humans, we're going to tear each other apart. We're just going to fight. We're going to fraction. We're going to separate. We're going to disassociate. We're going to judge one another just like they were doing in Rome when he wrote the letter. And so it's so important. How can we make a practical application today? Well, I don't imagine that you should just barge into the home of a Jewish person and say, hey, guess what? Jesus taught that that Gentiles are going to come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so therefore you guys need to let me sit down and eat with you. I don't think that's how it's going to work. Um, nor do we expect the, gen- the Jews to be um, knocking on the doors of Gentiles and saying, hey, can you let us in and sit down and eat with you? It's probably not going to work that way. In reality, in, first, in, 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 in 21st century application, we probably just need to, as p- different people groups, need to um, 
maybe just discuss these issues first. Who are the people across the um, tracks from us, the people across the street? Jews need to discuss uh, who are these people who are coming from East and West and, and uh, joining God's people and claiming to have covenant membership uh, who are they, and, and what is their legitimate claim to covenant membership? At the same time, the Gentile Christians need to reevaluate what does it mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the existing table uh, participants, and that we, those who come from East and West, have been invited to join them in, at table fellowship. What does that mean? How does that impact our understanding of the kingdom of heaven as Gentile Christians? How do we bless the existing family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and join with them in table fellowship? And what does that mean for Torah observance, right? Let's bring in the T word also. So let's conclude this particular section tonight uh, with Tim, in Tim, uh, Tim Hegg's commentary. Can't get the words out of my mouth there. His final um, uh, statement about um, the quote from Yeshua, let me just read that quote again. Let's go like that. Um, Tim Hag says, Yeshua emphasized this idea of Jew and Gentile coming together in the kingdom of God. Yeshua emphasized this when he taught, quote, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So it was within Yeshua's per, uh, a scope of of knowing the plans of his father, that Jew and Gentile would be brought together and worship God together, not have this separate uh, you on one side of the street, you on the other side of the street, this what I call bilateral ecclesiology, two separate and distinct people groups of God who don't, don't connect together in any way. Rather, Tim Hay continues, if we look at Matthew 8.11, was he that Yeshua had many sheep who were not presently part of his flock, right but that he would bring them nonetheless and that they would all form one flock with one shepherd john 10:16 one flock with one shepherd not two separate flocks with one shepherd kind of visiting them back and forth right israel has their god but we the church have our messiah somehow there's this separation no that's 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 not how paul envisioned it that's not the way yeshua taught it yeshua was the single shepherd of the flock he is the good shepherd like he described himself and he was this shepherd who was feeding his sheep one flock made up of jews and gentiles people from abraham's family that were national and people from the nations who were being brought into this family into this kingdom and becoming one flock together under this one shepherd yeshua our messiah tim concludes by saying the gospel of the kingdom is therefore a call to join an entity already in existence not a call to initiate and construct a new kingdom which had not previously existed and that is a big challenge to primarily to the Gentile Christian side of the house, the group that is currently enjoying the covenant favor and blessings of God as visibly seen through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, like we saw in Acts chapter 2, and the um, presence of the gospel and the, uh, the New Testament scriptures that we enjoy as Gentile Christians. All of this is uh, a very real indicator that we are kingdom members that we are kingdom participants as gentile christians make no mistake about it we are legitimate participants in the kingdom of god as gentile christians as a church yes this is true however is this a brand new thing 
Is the church something that never existed in the Old Testament? I don't think so. Paul didn't think so. The prophets didn't think so. Apparently Yeshua didn't think so. What did they think? They believed that the kingdom had ex- had um, uh, started with Israel and that the Gentiles were being brought in and joining this existing people group of God and enlarging the church, enlarging Israel's border, uh, uh, enlarging the family of Abraham. So let's not, as Gentile Christians, lose sight of that vital fact, especially as we're studying through the book of Romans. And that'll do it for my uh, Romans 14 Unplugged Feast and Fastens Food. Oh my. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's just jump right into um, the study that we've got available for tonight. Remember, we're working our way uh, through... Let me scroll down here. There we go. We're working our way through this um, chart that uh, Karm has supplied for us. We looked at the fact that in Matthew and in Colossians, we serve God the Father and we serve God the the Son. We looked at that last week. Let's turn now to the fact that, and we're only going to use one passage to do this, so this will be a very unique show tonight. The fact that according to Karm's chart, we believe in God, the Father, in John 14, 1, and yet by the same token, by Yeshua's own very words, we must then therefore believe in God, the Son. And that's the impact of what Yeshua is presenting to us. Let's just turn right to it. John 14.1 is the only passage in Karm's chart here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to supply some extra material for my own commentaries, and we're going to look at this idea of belief, of faith, and how that in the mind of the scriptural writers, starting from Genesis all the way through the New Testament, faith is a component that God expects his people to eventually possess. Faith in God is the heart of our covenant relationship with God. We must have faith in God. At the same time, this faith in God will um, uh, will bring in faith in Messiah. If it's genuine faith in God, then it's designed to lead us to faith in his Messiah. And that's what Yeshua is going to bring out in the John passage here. Let me, I suppose I should highlight that right there. John is going to record that Yeshua told us that if you believe in God, you must believe in me. And so that is really the challenge that he's giving to them and he's giving to us. This faith in God or believe in God, belief in God, is going to be expressed as faith in the Son. But for our commentary tonight, what I'm going to do is expand this and play with this word faith and show that how that in the mind of the biblical writers, faith alone was not the end of the plan that God had for mankind. It's not faith that would stop and just um, exist all by itself. Faith in God was supposed to also lead to faithfulness to his covenant. So faith gives rise to faithfulness. And then faithfulness is becomes the vindicating markers of genuine faith. Like James said, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. To paraphrase what he talked about there. So we'll play with this idea tonight. And in doing so, just to kind of give you a 
a sneak peek. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of John and look at that for, uh, the passage where Yeshua talks about if you believe in God, you should also believe in me, right? This uh, word faith, we'll look at that Greek word, uh, um, uh, pistuo, which is the uh, the verb to have faith or to believe in, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to turn to um, some uh, material that I've got on my Galatians commentary. We looked at this over the uh, uh, the holiday break, and so I'll keep picking it at this covenantal nomism and justification. This idea that in the first century, faith and faithfulness were two sides of one coin, and they were very important parts when it came to covenant membership and what God expected of us as His people. How how do faith and faithfulness work together? As a test case, what we'll look at is we will turn to Galatians chapter 3 once again. We'll drop down into the passage and we'll look how Paul uses and plays with this word faith, the Greek word pistuo or some cognate of it, and we'll see how it plays against faithfulness and covenant membership and being caused, uh, being counted as righteous or justified in God's sight. We'll also see how uh, David Stern picks up on this idea of faith and faithfulness when he quotes from the Habakkuk passage that Paul uses in um, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3. We'll look at his uh, rendering uh, the complete Jewish Bible. And then we'll turn once again finally to... um, uh, uh, my own commentary in uh, Galatians, and we'll look at the Habakkuk passage where Paul is quoting from, where he talks about the, 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 the just to live by faith. Is it the just living by faith or by faithfulness? Which faith, with which part of that coin is he focusing on? Things like that. So that's where we're going to go to be an unusual uh, Shema study night. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the break from the normal format where it's just normally just Trinity type studies. Okay, so let's go back to the chart and let's just jump into it. Karm has a chart where they challenge us that we believe in God the Father in John 14.1 and therefore because Yeshua is very God veiled in flesh we must believe in the Son with equal sameness. The belief goes both ways. So let's just look at that. Yeshua says in John 1, I'm sorry, John 14, 1, quote, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Pistuete, right? Pistuete is the Greek word. Pistuete eiston theon. Believe in God. And, or kai eisme pistuete. Believe also in me. So let's just uh, look at the Greek, sorry. Let's look at this Greek phrase right there. The first word, pistuete, this first word right there, Strong's number 4100, which we'll look at in a moment, can be translated as believe or have faith in. It's a verb in the present indicative active form. Second person is the uh, case there. So we've got believe in God. He's speaking to a group of people, right? Believe in God, pistuete eistam theon, Kai and or also ace ma pistuate. You must believe in me. If you're going to believe in God, then you must below also believe in me. The ma in the Greek there. But notice that it's the same Greek word 4100 in the Strong's number. Pistuate is used both times. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What's Yeshua trying to challenge us with? Well, I believe this is part of Shema theology when it comes to Trinity. We have a genuine faith in God, and if that faith in God is genuine, then our faith in Messiah will also be genuine. But it goes deeper than that. 
I believe Yeshua is not just saying, well, you have this surface level understanding in your head about who God is and what he does, and you trust that he's going to provide for you and, and keep you safe, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. But at the same time, then I want you to know that I'm going to keep you safe too, right? You can, you can trust in me. I'm reliable as well. I think it's a little more than that. And on the surface, it is that though, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. But when, we, when Yeshua said, believe in God, believe also in me, if we put that into the context of uh, Yeshua's statement, his sayings as a whole, then I do believe that Yeshua is challenging us with this idea that faith in God is going to eventuate in faith in Messiah if we allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. So much so that we come to the conclusion that God is the only God that we can place our faith in and thus Messiah must be one with this very same God because there's only one belief in, 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 in and only one object of faith. The object of our faith is God in this verse, pistuete eistantheon, and therefore with equal um, uh, equal apl- application, the faith in Messiah, kai eme pistuete, we also believe in Messiah. That's going to link the two together as one object of faith. Not believing in two gods, but belief in one God. Now, let's turn to um, playing with this idea of this word, uh, pistuita. Let's look this up. And is it that in the first century and today, that God expects faith to uh, be a means unto itself? What does believing in God eventuate in? in, uh, What does it lead to? What's it expected to lead to? Does God... um, anticipate that our faith in him is just going to stop and not give rise to something more? Is there something that God expects of us? This is the question I'm posing. As Gentile Christians, unfortunately, again, not all of us, but many of us have been led to believe that faith is really all that's important to God. I submit to you, as a Messianic Jewish man, that faith was not the end of the picture, the end of the story. I rather in picture, I like to envision a coin in the hand of God. It's a two-sided coin. One of the sides is faith, pistuo, which we're going to look at here in a moment. But the other side of the coin is what we would describe as faithfulness or obedience. And so it is both sides that are precious to God. Yes, we need to get our priorities right. Faith leads to faithfulness. We're going to see this when we turn to Galatians here in a moment. Let's look first at this Strong's number 4100. The Greek word is pistuo, and Strong's defines it as to believe or to entrust, have faith in, to, um, uh, the word studies down below talks about to be persuaded, right? Believing with the sacred significance of being persuaded, something to that effect. The context shows that um, uh, belief or faith from which we derive of uh, faith, the verbal faith, uh, is derived from a noun, pistis, 
4102. And the context indicates whether this verbal form of belief or faith is self-serving or the believing that leads to or leads to or proceeds from God's inbirthing of faith. So it is a it, it can be a, a a very difficult topic to discuss if you want to get really really deep into it. I'm trying to avoid all of that tonight. Let me just tell you the bottom line up front in case you get lost in my discussion along the way. God expects faith from his followers. The Bible is given to us to lead us to the profession of faith in God, to lead us to this recognition that there's only one God and that he alone is faithful and worthy the object of our faith. He is alone is the, ob- the worthy object of our faith. By placing our faith in God, we allow the Spirit to change our understanding of God and thus to accept God's Messiah into our life. And so our faith in God, if it's genuine, if it's Spirit-led faith, will lead us into a decision that Jesus is the one true Messiah sent by God to bring us into a right relationship with the God that we're placing our faith in. Faith in God leads to faith in Messiah. What did Yeshua say? Believe in God, believe also in me. It is in this relationship with God that we then are subsequently empowered by our faith in God and the Spirit of God to become faithful to God in our service to God. Understand how simple that is? Faith leads to faithfulness. Faith leads to faithfulness. That's the biblical um, picture. That's the biblical uh, pattern that I believe that we should be recognizing. So, faith leads to faithfulness. Let's continue. Let's turn now in this study in a different direction that's different from my normal Shema studies and look at this faith and faithfulness working together. This is a quote from, or this is a a lifted quote from my Galatians commentary. So just um, bear with me, allow me to share this part with you. I don't need to start right there, but it's under the section of the uh, of my summary in uh, my Galatians commentary, which is available on my my website at tatesatorah.com under the uh, Galatians uh, uh, exegeting Galatians, under the summary section. Under the paragraph entitled Covenantal Nomism and Justification, we drop down and let's just pick up where I have it highlighted right there. Covenantal nomism concerns itself with keeping the Torah for the express purpose of exercising the freedom of living as an existing covenant member with the scriptural assurance that God was pleased with such nomistic service, provided it was done in faith. Covenantal nomism did not view the Torah as a yoke of bondage the way the historic Christian communities have done. That's my first opening line so you can understand my uh, definition of covenantal nomism. Keeping the law for the express purpose of um, showcasing or um, uh, uh, highlighting or demonstrating covenant membership. God brings you into covenant relationship with him through that faith that you we talked about earlier, and then God empowers you to walk into his covenant via that very same Holy Spirit-empowered faithfulness. So faith and faithfulness end up working together, the two sides of the one coin in the hand of God working together to bring about the um, expected man of God that, that uh, God has uh, uh, planned all along. Let's keep reading my commentary. However, doesn't Paul explicitly say in Galatians 5 that the law is bondage? Right? What gives? 
context shows that Paul is combating ethnic-driven corporate righteousness and ostensible covenant membership based on social expectation and maintenance of law-keeping. So we had a blindness in the first century when it came to covenantal faithfulness, faith and faithfulness, which would mean by covenantal nomism. In the first century, particularly in the Galatian communities, there was this misunderstanding of the relationship between faith and faithfulness. If we, if we lay the two words out together in a linear fashion, side by side, then faith must come before faithfulness. Genuine faith comes first, and genuine faithfulness follows after genuine faith. In that word order, we must recognize that faith precedes faithfulness. Unfortunately, Paul's um, contemporaries in his day had swapped those two around. They were of the impression that faithfulness, i.e. Uh, group identification and maintenance of Torah, led to covenant membership, i.e. faith. And so they were misunderstanding. They had the cart before the horse, if you want to call it that way. We call it legalism today, or merit theology, or works righteousness. But in their day, it was it was known as works of the law. It was a program that envisioned um, conversion for Gentiles who weren't born Jewish. And it certainly envisioned uh, maintaining your covenant membership uh, brought, up, brought on by your, by your Jewish identity. And the keeping of the Torah um, um, helped you to maintain this covenant membership. That was their blindness. Let's keep reading. Because of the ground breaking work done by Sanders, E.P. Sanders, scholars have come to learn that the social relationship to the law, as described by Paul and his contemporaries, is best subsumed under the label covenantal nomism. And that's why I'm talking about it tonight. The bondage of Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is spiritual bondage spelled out for any believer who might wish to return to a first century Jewish worldview of corporate individual salvation and sanctification based on group membership and maintenance of Torah commands. So the blindness of the first century, this bondage that Paul's warning his Galatian uh, um, Christians away from is the blindness of Jewish identity that equals faith and covenant or uh, uh, Torah obedience, which equals faithfulness. So recall that in covenantal nomism, like I say on the top of my screen here, that in covenantal nomism, one gets in by belonging to the group that is being legally born or married into Jewish identity, or conversion to the legal status of Jewish, and one stays in by keeping the Torah. That's the basic uh, thrust of covenantal nomism. We're having this discussion on faith and faithfulness in in the uh, middle of our um, Shema study. We're ordinarily discussing, um, you know. Trinity topics and things like that. This is a, a bit of a, uh, an excursus type material, a digression if you want to call it, supplementary material, just to make the, the uh, study just a bit different this time. But in the big picture, it is still related to our genuine faith in God and our genuine faith in Messiah and uh, obedience to Yeshua's commandments, obedience to God's commandments. That's the bigger picture to keep in mind in this particular discussion. I say my commentary to Galatians. Remind yourself that in that neither of these two gets in, stays in facts are true in God's courtroom. You don't get into God's favor or get into fa into a covenant membership by being Jewish or becoming Jewish, and you don't stay in by maintaining the the um 
the commandments or anything like that. Thus, Paul is warning the genuine Galatian believers that to get in, one places his trust in Yeshua, and that to stay in, one waits for the hope of righteousness by faith. And so that's the relevancy to our discussion on faith and faithfulness. The debt to the whole law, verse 3, is a debt to whatever ethnocentric Jewish conversion policy the hapless Gentile converts would submit themselves to should they venture down that bondage-laden path, a debt that surely excluded group membership and Torah observance for non-Jews. So, in the mind of the Jewish people of Paul's day, the blindness to their Messiah also included a blindness to the presence of Gentiles. And so, their whole preoccupation with nationalism as expressed to this Jewish-only membership um, impacted the Gentiles in a way that if you guys, I'm a Jew speaking to a Gentile in Paul's day, if you guys want to belong to the same people group that we already belong to, that we were born into, if you guys want to get in, first of all, you have to change your ethnicity. Then you have to keep the Torah to keep your place in the group to show that you're a genuine covenant member and one that's a good upstanding covenant member. you got to pay your dues by keeping Torah. But you can't even get into the group until you convert. Leave your ethnicity at the door. Check your ethnicity at the door is what they were basically teaching. And of course, for Paul, that is wrong, wrong, wrong. Gentiles are brought into covenant membership by what? By the same thing that Yeshua talked about, faith. You have faith in God? Have faith in me. You believe in God? Then believe in me. That's where this discussion is going. Justification by law in verse 4 of Galatians means ostensible justification by the policy that teaches a Jewish-only Israel. So that's um, uh, the context that is relevant for us for this study tonight on faith and faithfulness, this supplementary material to my ordinarily trinity laden uh, commentary. Uh, let's keep looking at my Galatians notes here. What we learn from our studies on this topic is that axiomatic for Paul in his teaching on covenantal nomism and justification is his messy understanding and application of Habakkuk's famous verse, famous Pasuk, which is quoted in Galatians, uh, which is relevant for us tonight because it uses these same Greek words. The righteous shall live by his faith, Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by his faith. We're talking about faith tonight. We're talking about faith in God, which should equal faith in Messiah, because Messiah is very God-veiled in flesh. If you have faith in God and it's real, then you are going to have faith in Messiah, because your faith is real. It's genuine. It's spirit-led. It is matured faith. That's not to say that someone who's on their way to seeking uh, Messiah doesn't start with a faith that's real in God. It does start off on the right track. The definition of what I say real, what I'm talking about is it is reached its zenith, its fullness, its conclusions are being manifest. Um, you've graduated in the respect that your faith finds its um, uh, a final uh, expression in uh, placing your faith in Messiah. Your faith in God finds its final, fullest expression as you place your faith in Messiah. Until that day comes, your faith in God is just a journey. You're still traveling. Is the journey real? Oh yeah, of course, it's real. So don't um, don't lose sight and don't stop. Um, uh, uh, traveling on the journey. In my commentary, I say it this way. In Habakkuk 2.4, the last half of the verse is usually translated, quote, the righteous shall live by his faith. However, listen to this. This is something that many people are probably not aware of. Well, 
many Bible students are aware of, but um, uh, we don't express it in these terms. Based on one Hebrew word in the verse, it could just as easily be translated, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. But we usually translate it as the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, they're both nouns, faith and faithfulness. But notice the a, um, nuance behind the faith and faithfulness expression. The Hebrew word emunah is both faith and faithfulness, which is why the NIV, the NLT, the NET, and the GWT all have faithfulness for this word. Interestingly, Young's little translation has steadfastness. All right, so just listen up for a moment, okay? This is a bit of a word study. The origin words for faith and faithfulness share a noun and verb relationship in both Hebrew and Greek. Tim Haig of TorahResource.com explains the Hebrew and Greek noun and verb cognates this way. So, this is, this is the meat of my study tonight. Verb and noun of this one word. One of the major difficulties we encounter in our discussions of trust or believe and faith slash faithful is that there's no corresponding verbal form of faith in the English language, right? Um, we have no way of saying that one faithed or that someone is faithing in God. I suppose you would say faithing in God, right? Faithing in God. So we say, I have faith in God. That's the noun. But we don't say, I'm faithing in God, right? Or, hey, did you, did you notice how Ariel faithed in God? <laughs> we, don't, we don't use that term in, an, in a verbal form. Right? That's the that's that's where uh, that's the way or just the way our English is constructed. Tim Haig goes on to say, yet in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word expressing the concept of faith, the noun, also contains a verb cognate. So there's some relationship between the noun and the verb that we should be made aware of. For example, the Hebrew verb aman to be supported, from which we derive the verb the verb to believe has the corresponding noun emunah, which means faith or faithful, where we get our word amen from, right? Aman gives rise to uh, amen, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it sounds the same. The point is, for this first example, the verb and the noun have this uh, nice little relationship uh, one with one another. Um, they they evoke similar concepts from one another. Likewise, Tim Hague says the Greek verb pistuo to believe, like we looked at in the in the John passage, pistuo to believe has the corresponding noun pistis, which means faith or faithful. Unfortunately, many English readers do not realize that believing or having faith and being faithful all derive from the same word group, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek. Right? So, that's part of where I'm uh, stressing tonight and the emphasis that I'm trying to make in this discussion about uh, believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, verse 1. The way I see it, faith and faithfulness function as two sides of the same coin. This is my own commentary. In that they are both precious in God's eyes. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we're saved by works. I'm not saying we're saved by our faithfulness. Perish the thought. What I am saying is that genuine faith will lead to genuine faithfulness, right? It's James all over again. Show me your faith by your works, and I'll show you my faith. I'm sorry, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. My works vindicate my faith. Righteousness can be defined in two ways. Behavioral righteousness. Oops, sorry about that. Let's try that again. Start right there. We have behavioral righteousness, which is actually doing what is right. And we have forensic righteousness, which is being regarded as righteous in the sense, in two senses. The first one, A, is that God has cleared the person of guilt for past sins. That's 
righteousness in the forensic sense, and B, that God has given this person a new human nature inclined to obey God rather than rebel against him as before. So we are righteous in the sense that God um, um, deems us righteous because of what Messiah has done on our behalf and our faith in that Messiah. And that's this this um, uh, imputed righteousness that God gives to us. And then within that gift of imputation of, of God's imputing his very righteousness to us on Messiah's behalf, in that imputation, we also receive a new nature so that the old nature, which is inclined to sin, takes a backseat and should indeed um, uh, become less and less prominent in our lives because God has now given us the gift of being able to and the desire to actually follow after him and his righteousness. Millard Eckerson stated it this way, uh, a, 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 a Christian author, Sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. So understand how the two righteousnesses are working together. And so I have uh, 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 two paragraphs I don't want to read here, and I'll finish this part. And I think I will pick this up next week and make this a part two. We'll see how this works its way out through the book of Galatians. And I'll take my Shema study time to look at this. Thus, our verse in Habakkuk is a fitting one for our study on faith and faithfulness. For indeed, this passage is a decisive verse for the Apostle Paul, both where he uses it in Galatians and in Romans. Here, the famous phrase, the just shall live by faith, must be understood from the original context of Habakkuk to mean that the righteous person lives on the basis of his faithfulness. Understand what I'm saying there? The righteous person lives on the basis of his faithfulness. In the time of Habakkuk, the nation was being torn in her loyalties, whether to trust God in the covenant he had given or to ally herself with the nations for her protection. Habakkuk's statement is made with this in mind. The righteous, that is, those who have faith in God, will live, that is, be protected and sustained by faith, that is, by demonstrating a faithful trust in God and his promises. You will demonstrate that you have genuine faith in God by maintaining your faithfulness to God through covenant obedience. It is this understanding of faith that Paul carries into the argument of Romans and is sustained throughout the book of Romans and Galatians as well. We'll stop there and next week we'll pick up, I'll read this last paragraph here, and then I'll turn to the book of Galatians and we'll continue looking at this through the lens of the idea of you have faith in God? Well, then you must have faith in me. We'll make it a two-parter this time. Very unusual. Yeshua says, let not your hearts be troubled in John 14, 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Yeshua uses the same Greek word to to talk about believing in God. Believe in the God, literally in the Greek. And, Kai, believe also in me, or and uh, in me believe. Believe in God, believe also in me. The also there is implied, or it's we could say it's and there also in me believe. Uh, it's the same Greek word that we looked at earlier, Strong's number, um, here we go, Strong's number 4100, pistuo. We're playing with this idea of pistuo, the verb, and pistis, faith, 
or um, um, believing or or uh, pistis the noun, uh, which w- from which we get the verb pistuo the uh, the belief or something like that the believing, and we'll pick this up next week. But that'll do it now for our exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the um, uh, lit. Uh, what do we do next after uh, Shema? We typically turn to the um, liturgy and then after the lit- liturgy we'll watch the video and then after the video we'll discuss we'll uh, I'll close in prayer uh, I think I'll make the um, uh, liturgy very very short uh, Jeremiah 31 um, uh, 31 I'll develop this over time so I'll just read one verse tonight Jeremiah 31 starting in verse 31 we read about this new covenant that God's making with the house of Israel obviously Gentiles are within the purview of this new covenant because Yeshua um, explains in the Gospels that this new covenant is ratified by the shedding of his blood. And so, even though this new covenant is made with Israel in the house of Judah, it envisions the Gentiles. We won't read about them tonight. We'll just read about Israel. But we'll start us out just with one verse tonight. Jeremiah 31, 31. Uh, in English, over on the left side of the page, ESV reads, Behold, the days are coming, he declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So a new covenant is going to be ratified with a people group, and it's important that the Gentiles find their place in the covenant by relationship to this existing people group. He doesn't say I'm making a covenant with the Gentiles. And that's a kicker. That's a, that's a, that's a deal breaker. If Gentiles aren't uh, included in the covenant membership under the umbrella of Israel, then where are they to be found? Where do the prophets speak of bringing Israel, uh, I'm sorry, of bringing the Gentiles in? He doesn't say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and the nations. Well, then it must be that the, that the nations are included somehow within the um, scope of Israel and the house of Judah. The Hebrew over on the right side of the page says, That's the uh, liturgy from the Tanakh. And in uh, the Apostolic Scriptures, we'll just pick on um, uh, one verse as well. I'm going to start in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Galatians and eventually read 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 for our liturgy, um, as we're looking at in the uh, Shema study, this idea of faith and faithfulness. The Gentiles are included in the people group of God and the new covenant because they are being brought into the family of God by faith, not by works of the law and the conversion policy of the first century. And Paul expresses it this way in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. The quote is from the Torah. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. It's actually from the book of Deuteronomy. The key to understanding this verse is that Part of what God expects of his people when he gave them the commandments is genuine faith in God, which leads to genuine faith in Messiah. What did Yeshua say in John 14, 1? Believe in God, believe also in me. So if you don't believe in me, then it's 
proof that you don't believe in God and therefore you are cursed because you're not doing everything that's written in the book of the law. One of the things that's commanded of you is to have genuine faith in God, which will lead to genuine faith in me. I'm Yeshua talking. Thus, if you're not following after faith in God, which leads to faith in Messiah, then you are cursed because you're relying on self-effort, i.e. works of the law. The Greek over on the right side of the page of verse 10 says, Hasoi gar ex ergo namu, eisen hupakataran, eisen gegraptai, gar, hati epakataratas, pas hos uk emene, pasm tois gegramenois into biblio, tu namu, tu poiesai auta. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Uh, I wanted to uh, mention about um, uh, miss, uh, uh, miss uh, defining a particular Hebrew or Greek word, but I'll do that next week. Let's turn now instead to the short little video, and then right after the video is over, we'll just dismiss in prayer, okay? You guys ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah Teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. I want to talk about a well-known passage to those of us in the Messianic movement, Ezra 7.10. Many Messianics refer to this passage as, quote, the Ezra example, unquote. Let me quote it for you and explain how this wonderfully simple principle works. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's from the ESV. The verse is really self-explanatory, but I'll share my thoughts with you anyway, just in case you are unfamiliar. In the chapter here, we find that Ezra, a priest and a scribe of the Lord, was returning from Babylon to go up to Jerusalem with a letter of blessing and support from Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. The passage in focus is also careful to mention more than once that the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. It is within this context that we read about Ezra's method of covenant faithfulness to the Torah of Moshe. Firstly, Ezra set his heart to study the Torah. Even though he was skilled in the law of God, nevertheless, he set his heart to study the precious words of God. Secondly, and subsequently, Ezra set out to do what the Torah was commanding him to do. He did not merely study it for study's sake. He studied with the intention of personally putting it into practice in his own life. Finally, Ezra set out to teach others this very same Torah. I like to imagine that this final step represents the fruit of his self-study and personal Torah-obedient walk. To be sure, God surely extends this world blessings to all those who are submissive to his gracious Torah. But to give to others out of the abundance of what God is personally sharing with you is, in my experience, where the real blessings lie. Study in order to do, in order to teach others. The Ezra example is quite the practical principle for both Jews and Gentiles in today's body of Messiah. Wouldn't you agree?
Let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name, and I thank you for the time that we have had together in which we can study your words, in which we can bless one another, and to uh, reach out and connect to one another across the miles using this particular medium of the internet. Lord, I pray that you will empower us to be obedient to you, that you will continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can lead lives that are pleasing to you. We can be a a people of God who are exemplary in our walk. We can continue to reach out and love one another and support one another by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Indeed, without the Ruach HaKodesh in our lives, we can't actually walk out the Torah the way that you envisioned it to be walked out. It is really from faith to faith. It is by true faith in you, which is faith in God and faith in Messiah, that we are brought into this relationship with the king in his kingdom. We are brought into the family of Abraham, and we have this relationship with God, which means, as Jew and Gentile, we have a relationship with one another. Help us, Lord, to look past our own differences. Help us not to judge one another. Help us to understand that we both need each other in this kingdom effort to um, magnify the name of God and his Messiah, to bring about the um, conviction of sin uh, in each other's lives, to to play that part where the Holy Spirit is using us to reach out to someone else. Lord, we also have a responsibility to take this gospel to those who have not yet um, become uh, uh members of the kingdom yet. They're not yet citizens. They don't know who Yeshua is. Give us the uh, heart um, desire to to reach, uh, give us what we would call a, uh, uh, um, a heart for lost souls. Help us to know that you are empowering us to go and to take the gospel, to reach around the world and to bring people into the family. Continue to raise us up and protect us and to provide for us during these difficult pandemic times. Continue to help us to trust in you despite um, the uh, uh, the uncertainty, uh, dis- despite the fear, despite um, the political scene, despite uh, all of the uh, employment mess. Lord, to help us to, to uh, place our trust in you. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. 
The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 